and uh, I'm going to read for you 1 Timothy chapter 1. You might want to turn there as well. That would have normally served as our scripture reading, 1 Timothy, uh, as a complimentary text, but having already read Luke chapter 7, that passage there in full, it was quite a long passage, and we read that about the immoral woman in its entirety, I'd like to open today with this short autobiography of another renowned sinner named Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul the Apostle, right? And he's writing to young Timothy about his own past. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, that is, of the church, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief, right? Yet for this reason, Paul says, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, a life of Christ in the Gospels presents us a story. We've been in this story a while now. And when asked to comment about the story, the life of Christ, some see the life as a, as a story of miracles. Some perceive a man that expressed unparalleled compassion. Others still visualize his life as that of being a hero, a hero facing conflict and ultimately martyrdom. All those are true. But the life of Christ in the Gospels is ultimately a story of redemption. A story of redemption. In fact, the entire Bible, cover to cover, beginning to end, is a story about the redemption of God's chosen people. He redeems them through His power and His grace because of His love. And and folks, this is a type of grace that should amaze all of us. It's grace so amazing. And when it comes to assessing our own sinful past, some of us feel we have been comparatively forgiven, maybe a little less than others. Perhaps there are some amongst us a lot like the Apostle Paul, where we're forgiven a lot. But folks, all are forgiven on the same basis. All are forgiven through unearned grace. In contrast to that, the Pharisees, who we've been seeing repeatedly in this, in this gospel, the Pharisees was graced, grace that was deserved. It was a merit-based salvation. Uh, they could never envision God's grace reaching a sexually immoral woman, especially a woman who was probably a prostitute. They, they could only calculate that her sins... They'd only earned her one thing. What is that? Separation from God in hell. That's what the Pharisees could calculate. You know, they got that part right. That's all that that type of life could earn. 
What they got wrong was believing that their own sins, the sins of the Pharisees, comparatively less in some degrees, didn't deserve hell. They didn't see themselves as deserving hell. So in Luke chapter 7, Jesus delivers what is widely known as the parable of two debtors. The background to this parable is again a dinner or a banquet. But it wasn't a banquet of honor like Levi gave just a couple chapters back. This is a banquet of entrapment of Jesus. In the last chapter, we learned the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, hoping that they could accuse him for something. And in fact, John chapter 5 tells us that by this time already, the Pharisees were already discussing how they might kill Jesus. This was what was in their minds. What better way to watch Jesus closely than, than invite him over to dinner, right? Hear everything he says and keep a close eye on him. So the story opens in verse 36 with with Jesus entering into the Pharisee's house and reclining. It'd be much in the same way that we studied the last couple weeks during the Passover. Um, He would be reclining at at a low table, a table low to the ground, and uh, probably lying head first towards the table on a pillow in one shoulder where he could eat with the other. Uh, At the same time, his feet would be directed away from the table as he ate. So his feet are out and away from the table. And in a dinner like this, uninvited spectators were often permitted to come in and sit away from the table around the perimeter if it's in a room or if it's in a courtyard. It could be out in the courtyard and they are permitted to listen in to the teaching. They didn't get to eat the banquet, but they could sit around and listen to the rabbis and the teachers teach. Um, And in verse 37, a woman enters the home who is known to be sexually immoral. She has a reputation. And, and, And understand, when she had learned that Jesus had been invited to dinner, when she had heard that, she realized that he would be reclining. In fact, if you look in the passage in just two verses, reclining is mentioned twice. We're getting the point here. She knew he would be reclining and that she would find access to his feet, right? She entered with a premeditated idea to bring in this costly vial of perfume and have access to his feet. Take note as well that that this is not the same occasion that... uh, we find a woman anointing Jesus' feet the burial, uh, for his burial the week before his death. That's a different occasion. Uh, Matthew 26 is where you'll find that. That event comes much later. Don't get them confused. There's also no biblical evidence uh, as to the identity of this woman. Some speculate it was Mary Magdalene. We really don't know. There's no real biblical evidence. It's speculation. But whoever she is, folks, she's courageous. She is a courageous woman because she's going to enter an environment that's hostile to her. The Pharisees don't like her. They know who she is, but she knew she had to gain access to Jesus. I anticipate she probably at some point, either early on before Jesus got there or afterwards, quietly entered, you know, kind of discreetly, inconspicuously, as not to draw attention to herself. But then standing at Jesus' feet, she anointed them with her tears, the passage says. 
and then the perfume. And then she knelt down. She began to wipe and weep. Wipe and weep. Kiss and weep. All while using her hair as the towel and as the rag uh, wiped Jesus' feet. Well, folks, here the Greek is in the imperfect tense. That means that she kept on wiping and wiping and weeping and weeping and kissing and kissing the feet of Jesus. Where did she come from? Where did she come from? How did she know who Jesus was? The impression we get is that she was in the crowd assembled in verses 18 through 35. If so, she would have heard John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus, Are you the expected one? She would have listened as Jesus told the crowds, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And she would have been present when Jesus declared that he was being accused of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) And here she enters now, a known sinner, in verses 37 and 39, widely known You don't have to be a math professor to calculate this equation. She had been convicted of her sins. That her life was exceedingly sinful. She had heard Jesus preach repentance and forgiveness along with the crowds. She had been convinced in her heart of who Jesus was and that he was a man of his word in what? How is Jesus a man in his word? That he would receive a sinner like a friend. That he would receive her. So the woman entered this home. She'd already had her heart transformed. She knew who he was. She had heard the word through the preaching of Jesus. And her reaction or her behavior that we'll read here is an appropriate one of a faith conversion. This would be an appropriate response to Jesus, which we'll learn shortly. This woman's already been converted. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Her life had been one of a woman of the night, most likely a prostitute, though we can't say for certain. And if in this culture, after a young girl became married, as virtually all did, not all, but virtually all, um, as an adult woman with dignity, they would never again take their hair down in public. Letting your hair down was only done in front of your husband alone. It was an intimate um, expression. Wearing your hair down in public, wearing it down, was an indication you were sexually available. It could be equated today, we might look at it as something like six-inch stilettos and a short skirt. My mom used to say about immodest women, she dresses like a hussy. She, she took her hair down, or she per, might have even entered with her hair already down. That, that indicator of what her life had previously been is now going to be used as a towel to wipe Jesus' feet. Remember when we were back in high school, all of us would possibly, uh, most all of us, maybe not everyone, 
But in high school, you'd have, you know, a person or another that would maybe have bad hygiene or, or something like that, and maybe they didn't comb their hair, and, you know, the, it, it would spread that they have cooties, right? And nobody wanted to touch anybody with, with cooties. Remember that, how we used to foolishly play that? Um, that's kid talk for you don't want to become defiled through touching, right? Well, here in verse 39, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this and he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she's a sinner. Notice the Pharisee, she's a sinner. Not I'm a sinner. She's a sinner. And and the Pharisees believed that you could become ceremonially defiled, even through touching a prostitute. For them, touching sinners was gross. Notice by comparison, due to Jesus' preaching of God's love and God's mercy and repentance and forgiveness, she, being the sinner, became convinced that Jesus would be receptive of her. That He would receive her. That she could go in and bow down to His feet and He would be open to receiving her. What does that say about the way churches should function today? If the Holy Spirit draws a woman to our church as a visitor, she enters, she, she's convicted, she needs to meet God's people, to hear about Christ, this Jesus, and perhaps she's dressed a, a little immodestly. Maybe it's because her mom never taught her how to dress. Maybe it's all she had in the closet. Perhaps throughout her life it's been men that have told her that that's the way a woman should look. That that's what dressing nice looks like. Would we recoil at her presence? Would we pull away from her and pull back our feet? Not want to be touched? Possibly look her up and down and give her the evil eye? Or should we welcome her with a smile and a hug? Should we receive her? Now, the men better not. I'll settle for a shake and a smile. Handshake. But the women, both young and old, should. We should. And by observing our acceptance and and our receptiveness toward her, and through what other women will wear, you know, it'll only take a couple weeks. And and maybe they'll grab a shawl or, or perhaps find something else on sale. They'll get the picture. You receive them and love them and, and, and touch them, they'll eventually get the picture, and, and you let the Holy Spirit do the work. We don't have to place people under our law, folks. The Holy Spirit will teach her. Same would be with a man who op- walks in, you know, with a John Travolta shirt or something, staying alive or whatever that was. The Holy Spirit will change them. They will see, they will be convicted by the Word of God. They'll come to love God's people, and they'll gain wisdom through that. As Elihu said to Job and his friends, I am young in years, and you are old. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. They'll get it. If they stick around, they'll get it. We have to allow 
the Holy Spirit, folks, a, a window of opportunity to do his work of sanctification. Pharisees don't give that window. No window for them. Verse 39 then reveals this Pharisee's motive for inviting Jesus to dinner. It was to assess him, to test him. It says, if this man were a prophet, this is him speaking to himself now, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is. His assessment then of Jesus, a prophet should know. A prophet should know. The irony is, in verse 39, the Pharisee said this statement to himself. And in verse 40, Jesus answers him. Isn't that nice? Now don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. The man speaks to himself, and criticizing Jesus, and Jesus answers. And he answers in this way, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So in verse 41, Jesus begins his parable now. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. In the parable, the money lender is God. The debtors are sinners. A denarii is equal to a day's wage. It is a denarius, one day's wage. So, so with weekends and other things figured in, this results to being about two months' wages versus approximately two years' wages. Both of them are, are considerable amounts, right? Significant debts. But God graciously forgave both. Don't miss this. God's grace is the basis of forgiveness. And forgiveness is not earned. Neither of these debtors had the ability to pay. They are debtors. So they obviously did not earn this forgiveness. Jesus says that God graciously forgave. Folks, that is amazing grace. In fact, John Newton, the writer of that song, Amazing Grace, um, he was a foul womanizer. He was a slave ship captain who later came to know Christ and forgiveness, and then he ended up being a, an Anglican priest. Later on, before he wrote that song, he didn't earn forgiveness. That's why it's called grace, folks. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not the result of works lest anyone should boast. So whether it's 500 denarii or 50 denarii, and as far as the debtor goes, regardless of the debt, God's forgiveness is unmerited, unearned. It is grace. The question to Simon through the parable is, which debtor will, God, will love God more? Which one would love God more? He replied, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave. I like the, I suppose. He's not really tracking, is he? I suppose. Not really into the teaching of Jesus. And don't miss this, folks. Don't miss this. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. 
Jesus affirms theologically that a person forgiven much loves much. That's the spiritual truth, the heavenly truth to this earthly story, the parable. One who has been forgiven much loves much. And the woman here uh, works as the illustration and the example. Verse 44, turning toward the woman. Jesus says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Simon offered no anointing of oil. None. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Past tense, forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Her sins had already been graciously forgiven before she came into Simon's house. Her love expressed towards Christ is exactly what the parable suggests. It is her loving response to the graciousness given, just as in the parable. The love is the response to the forgiveness. Jesus is not suggesting that He is forgiving her because she washes feet. That's not the point at all. You can't reconcile that idea to this. Actually, that idea is ridiculous. You've washed my feet, so now you're forgiven. No. She's washing His feet because she knows she's been forgiven. Let me read it again. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which of many have been forgiven... How do we know? How do we know? For she loved much. That's how we know. She loved much. The way that you can know a person is a genuine believer in Christ is that God's gracious forgiveness becomes manifest in their lives and they love Christ much. That forgiveness by God is reciprocated toward Christ. Projected toward Christ. And utilizing Jesus' principle, then, how much did the Pharisee, how much love did the Pharisee express toward Jesus? No water. No kiss. No anointing. No love. Zero. Why zero love? Zero forgiveness. The Pharisee's debt had not been forgiven. His heart was not transformed. The reality of that is that he had no love towards Jesus. All that was evidenced was his disdain and his disrespect toward Jesus. Jesus also affirms this woman's sins. Yeah, they were many. Many. What does that suggest as an answer to the Pharisee's question to himself back in 39, verse 39? If this man were truly a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is. Jesus is now saying to Simon, oh, I know what kind of woman she is. Right? 
To answer your question again, I know, and, and, and because I'm the one who forgave her, and yes, by the way, I am a prophet. Even more than a prophet, we'll learn. And, and the reason this woman is here at my feet, Jesus could say, is she understands her many sins are forgiven. That's why she's here, and she loves me much. Folks, these tears are not begging for mercy. They're tears of adoration. They're tears of love she loves much. It's emotional affection towards her Savior, and she loves Him much. And in verse 48, Jesus simply clarifies the obvious. The obvious to everyone. The application of this parable for everyone in the room to hear. She loves much. So He said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Declaring that she is washing his feet because her sins had already been forgiven. Um, we have three categories of person in this story, folks. Not two. Three categories of person which you are invited by Jesus. Lucas, he wrote this, inviting the reader. You are invited today. Um, three categories of person that you are invited to classify yourself as or with one of them. There is a person forgiven much. They love much. There's a hypothetical person forgiven who loves a little. That imaginary person isn't even in the presence of the room. And then there's the person not forgiven who doesn't love Jesus at all. No water, no kiss, no oil. That's the Pharisee named Simon. He's the third category. And the people ask in verse 49, who's this man who can forgive even sins? And the answer is self-explanatory. We've gone through that back in Luke chapter 5. Who is he? He is is God in human flesh. He can forgive because as God, he has that ability and capacity. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She is the one who gets to leave in peace, folks. Out of everyone gathered here, she is the one who gets to leave in peace. Did washing feet save her? No. Jesus says her faith saved her. Where does faith originate? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Her faith was given as a gift from God. She didn't earn it, for she was a debtor. She has been graciously forgiven by God. That is grace so amazing. In fact, the verb forgiven, you look in verse 48, that's called, uh, that is in the Greek passive tense. It's referred to as, by theologians as a divine passive. It means that the forgiveness does not originate inherently in her. She's not the origin of the forgiveness. It's in the passive tense. From Jesus' parable, The fact that God is the subject becomes embarrassingly obvious. Folks, if you've you've been mistakenly led to believe that that your grace or your faith or your forgiveness somehow originates in you, well, you have a problem. Because you're trying to find a way to take some of the credit for, for canceling out your own debt. How can you do that? How can you take credit for canceling your debt? You, you couldn't pay it in the first place. Only Jesus can pay the debt on the cross. 
And only God can cancel it. No matter how good that you think you have been, you can't save yourself, folks. No matter what level of sin you think that you've sinned, you can't make up for it yourself. You're a debtor. So here's the question and the application of the passage to you. How do you classify yourself? How do you look at yourself? How do you see yourself when it comes to sin? Have you been forgiven or have you been forgiven a lot? Or have you not been forgiven? Personally, I'm going to lump myself in with the Apostle Paul. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, along with this woman, along with John Newton, I'm throwing, throwing my hat in with them. I've been forgiven a lot. I want to declare that publicly today. I've been forgiven a lot. And you know what that requires of me? I better love a lot. That's, that's the, only, the only conclusion I can come, uh, come with in this passage. Remember, a person forgiven a little, it, 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 that person isn't even identified in this passage. It, it's a hypothetical. I, I don't know who that would be. That, that, that's the reason I think that Jesus just kind of leaves that open-ended for people to think about. Who would that be? The woman sees herself as a 500. She goes, I don't know who the 50 is. I'm the 500. The Pharisee doesn't see himself as a sinner at all. Sins that we've, that we've committed, sins of pride, that's a, that's, we think of that as a little thing in our day. That's what got Satan thrown out of heaven, pride. That's a 500, chalk it up. Uh, blasphemy. Like the Apostle Paul, do you know that in the Old Testament under the law that that was punishable by death? The name of God is so holy, so perfect, so righteous that the penalty under the law for blasphemy was death. Okay, 500. Is there a 50? Does a 50 even exist? I don't know. I'll share another, another view on that uh, Professor at Dallas Seminary, actually president of Dallas Seminary, Dr. Mark Bailey, has a great illustration. He, he suggests perhaps there's a 50. Um, some of us have really blown it. Some of us, if you look at Christ's perfection as, as, a, as a plate glass window, some of us have blown through that thing with a bazooka. Some of us have really blown it. And, and others, maybe you were raised in, in a pretty good family. Maybe you went to church regularly. Maybe you had it pretty straight early on. Perhaps you shot BBs at the window. Maybe you have a life of BBs. You know what his conclusion is, and it's right? Dr. Bailey says they both have the same result. Plate glass, the righteousness of God is shattered either way. It doesn't matter whether you shoot BBs or a bazooka. We're all debtors. We're all debtors. Is there a 50? Possibly. I'm a 500. If it's accurate that you and I have been forgiven much, if you come to classify yourself as a 500, Jesus provides no other option than responding by loving Him much. There's no other scenario for the debtor who's been forgiven much. The woman's weeping and weeping and wiping and kissing. And folks, the foot washing, that's no minor symbol in Scripture. No minor symbol at all in the Gospels. Uh, later in John chapter 12, Mary 
the sister of Martha. She enters the home of Simon the leper. That's a different Simon. Common name back then. Simon Peter, lots of Simons. And she does a similar act of worship where she anoints the head of Jesus and then washes his feet afterwards. Costly perfume, washing his feet. And the disciples, having learned nothing over all this time, the disciples rebuke her. What is Jesus' response? He says to them in Mark chapter 14, Leave her alone, for she has done a good deed for me. Just let her be. And only a week later, during the Passover and the Last Supper, Jesus then adopts what these two amazing women have already demonstrated. Jesus is going to up the ante here a little bit, himself, by establishing the practice symbolically among his disciples, right? He washes all their feet, saying in John chapter 13, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. And then in Luke 22, on the same occasion, Last Supper, he says, The one who is greatest amongst you must become the servant. Must be the servant. That's what's great. That's what's great. Now be careful here. Is expressing love toward Jesus today, is, is, is that expressed through washing feet? Is it taking the role of a servant? A servant of his house. Now we're getting warmer. The illustration doesn't end there. Or the principle doesn't end there, excuse me. The first, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, again, uplifting a woman to be honored. Which woman is honored there? It's the widow indeed, right? She's the one... Paul writes, having a reputation for good works, she's brought up her children well, she's shown hospitality to strangers even, she has washed the saints' feet. He says that she's devoted herself to every good work. The command to wash one another's feet, I know we've done that symbolically, not this church since I've been here, but I know churches, Christians have done that symbolically. Well, let's have a foot washing ceremony. That really kind of misses the point. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's really kind of missing the point that Jesus is making here. We don't, we don't get dusty, dirty feet like we used to do. That's not the point Jesus is making. He is commanding His disciples to embrace a role of service to one another, to other disciples of Christ, to other followers of Christ. Who, who is Christ's body? Take a look around. The people. The people, the church. I heard the church back there exactly. It's the people who constitute his local church. We serve one another. We love one another. We, we wash one another's feet. Today, the person who has been forgiven much, loves much. And they display that love through the washing of the feet of Christ's people. Serving Christ's people, his very own body, his saints. Those whom he purchased with his blood. The local bodies of Christ, indwelt by His Holy Spirit, they are today the physical manifestation of Christ walking the earth. That's what we are. We are the living, breathing, physical manifestation of Christ walking the earth, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's His body. 
That's why he always uses the analogy of my body. The hand and the eye, we are all parts of his body. As we walk the earth, we do his work. And if you truly love Christ, you'll love his body. You will love his body, his church. If you suggest you're willing to serve Christ, you're willing to serve his body. If you love him much, you will love his body. In one capacity or another, you will serve. It's a reason that so many uh, sacrifice in so many ways, multiple ways, whether it's setting a week aside to help collect junk out of people's garages and resell it so that those children can go to a good, good youth camp. We come together to make sure that money won't be a barrier for any family if they want to send their child there. We're serving one another. We're, we're washing their feet and making sure everyone can participate together. It's a reason that, that we have a couple women who vacuum and clean bathrooms week to week. They don't even have children, but then they volunteer in the nursery. It's because they love the church. They want to serve. They want to love, uh, show their love for Jesus. It, it overflows like rivers of living water coming out of your life as it does with everyone, every person who has a loving relationship with a local church. In doing so, they will say, I will care for this local manifestation of His body. I'm going to wash Christ's feet. That's what we do. So when you hear people assert they've been forgiven much, therefore they love Jesus so very much, you can usually pretty accurately observe that through their relationship to their local church. Pretty closely, if it's a good church. Those who've been actually forgiven much will, not might, Jesus says they will love much. They will be washers of many feet. Um, quick story. Saturday evening before Easter, of course we were sharing those printouts that we had trying to invite people to Resurrection Sunday and uh, went into a local convenience store and handed a tract and just overheard the lady saying, I don't have anything anywhere I have to be in the morning. I don't have to work. And I said, well, could I invite you to church? Could I invite you to Resurrection Sunday service? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do church at home. And I go, what? She goes, no, I, I just do that alone. I'm like, what? You can't do that alone. Oh, yeah, I just, I just have church alone. I said, no, you don't. You don't have the church alone. And she brought up the famous phrase, the one from Matthew 18, wherever two or three are gathered, you know, then, yeah, well, there's a problem there. That's not talking about worshiping alone. That's in the context, and you can look back there, Matthew 18, of a disciplinary action in the church. That they have two or three witnesses that are giving uh, uh, testimony, thank you, testimony of of an action going on in a church in a disciplinary process. Jesus is not saying there that just because there are two or three are gathered that you're in church. No, you're not. In fact, folks, you want reassurance in being alone because it can apply. You can be alone in prison. You can be alone anywhere. And God reassures Psalm 139, where can I go out of your presence? You can descend to the depths of the earth and I am there. So it is a proper application. But it's not saying that, that wherever two or three are gathered is an excuse to not have to come together with the church. It's not given as an excuse to be on your own and be away from church. It is not. We have to be together. 
We have to worship together. We have to love one another together. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you love the brethren. You love the brethren. That, that's, not, that's not your brothers from your family. It might be if they're Christians and they go to the same church. Let's talking about the brethren. Um, the old, uh, wherever two or three are gathered, uh, just doesn't hold water. Um, this woman here, she's experienced grace so amazing that Jesus can say to her, of all the people here, of all the people here, you are the one who gets to depart and enjoy a life characterized by peace. To the rest of Simon's household or those who were there, Jesus could virtually turn and say, do you know why your life stinks? Do you know why you're anxious about money all the time? Do you uh, realize why you're worried about health constantly? And uh, do you know why your, your life and your relationships is characterized by turmoil? Why you have repeated uh, failures in relationship? He could say to them, do you want to know possibly why there is no peace in your life? As this woman who is departing has peace? Jesus could say to Simon, let me offer everyone in the room here a hint. When it came to caring for me and for my body, no water, no kiss, no ointment. Jesus said, you need to love me. but That requires forgiveness. Can you depart in peace today? Folks, can you finally depart in peace? Or are you in turmoil? Maybe you got, accidentally got something out of order. Maybe the reason you don't enjoy God's people or don't enjoy the church is maybe you put the cart before the horse. Maybe you thought that just serving in church was where salvation came instead of it being a response to salvation. Maybe something's just out of order. Maybe you've been trying to serve the church and serve God's people, and, and, and it just doesn't come. You know what I mean? It's just frustrating. There's no joy in it. It's like trying to pull a stubborn tooth, and it just won't come. I, just, I want to do it. I want to do those things, but I just can't. I just don't love it. So you leave the tooth alone, and it just continues to bother you. Are you there today? How about switching the order? How about accepting the truth about Christ that He offers forgiveness to all who will have faith in Him and doing your service out of a response of love that when you're, you're serving others in, in the church in whatever capacities you're doing, that you're doing it because out of, a, out of a response to the grace that God has shown you, the love that He has shown you through the cross, would that not be better? Let's pray about that together. Will you join me?